welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecast, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. We have a special treat for you today. We have Mitch Rochelle, who is the U.S. real estate practice leader with PwC, headquartered in New York. He joined me for a fireside chat at the Georgia CCIM chapter meeting. Mitch shared his outlook on U.S. commercial real estate. Enjoy. Well, Mitch, my first question for you is, you know, times are good. They've been good, but we've had some stock market volatility. You know, we've had some issues around the world with the economy. We've seen interest rates maybe ticking up a little bit. Where are we? How long will the good times last? The big, best question Am first, I supposed right? to break into song now or something <laughs> like My standard answer is, because I get the question what inning it is, so my standard answer is we're sort of in the middle of a doubleheader, so that gets me out of having to say what inning it is. But what's interesting is it's probably harder to answer today than it was maybe in October or November when you asked me for the first time on your show, because then while there were potential headwinds out there, it felt more tailwindy than headwind. And the only thing that was really going on at the time was interest rates and what a Fed action may do and so forth. Well, I just saw a tweet from CNBC. The 10-year is at the lowest level since 2012 and is at 155. That's a tailwind. The bubble feeling was driven by foreign capital coming to the United States from, amongst other places, China, and that's not happening. Sovereign wealth funds, many of whom are oil-rich nations, they were investing in U.S. real estate. That doesn't seem like it's happening. We're really at an interesting point from capital flows perspective, I did a similar thing in New York and I had two big brokers in New York who do you know billion dollar transactions. And I said, what's this year look like? And they said, well, we have less listings signed up in January than we've had in the last four or five years. Everybody actually thought that that was a good thing. Reinflating the bubble is the thing that scares a lot of market participants. And maybe this uncertainty that's going around the world is actually good for real estate in that it's not going to sort of get us into bubble territory. The question you didn't ask, and maybe that's like number 19 on your list, what's going on with the economy? And is the economy really slowing down? Are we, are we in a recession? So maybe we could tackle that one when you get around to asking it. But from a bubble perspective, from an inning perspective, I think we're probably in a good place because... It was getting, what did Greenspan call it, economic exuberance. We don't have that going on in real estate right now with people just stupidly throwing money at the asset class. And maybe that's good from a bubble perspective. Well, what do you say to the people who suggest that these three and four cap rates, sometimes lower in some of these gateway markets that people are paying for, these core assets is too high because of the low cost of money that when interest rates do rise, they've got to go up at some point, right, that they may be overpaying? I'd argue in gateway markets that cap rate compression was driven by supply and demand of product. There was supply of capital, there was demand for product, there wasn't enough of it, so people were just driving down cap rates. But all those people who were labeled stupid because they paid a three cap were geniuses when NOIs grew in those markets, especially in multifamily, and then that three that they paid a year ago economically became a five. Right. So there was all of this market clearing price that looked crazy. And then all of a sudden this instant gratification because they look smart. And then what did investors do? Those gateway markets got too crowded. So they went to other places in the country and then they started doing the same thing. And then they were validated there. So I think and I tried to when I speak publicly, never use the words cap rate. Right? And you just baited me into it. But I would suggest that cap rate compression will happen less 
going forward. And we published, shameless plug, we published a PwC Real Estate Investor Survey four times a year, and we survey investors, the next one's coming out, and we're definitely seeing investors' eyes, the slowdown in cap rate compression. So I think that's what your question was, people just throwing money at stuff and driving down cap rates. That's going to happen less, probably because there's less capital chasing it. But what we will find is investors leaving, raising capital and leaving it on the sidelines because they're worried about the future. And sooner or later, those toes will get back in the water and we'll be back in this thing again. And Mitch, you mentioned NOI growth and in some of these properties, even these low cap rate properties, what are the things causing them? We're now seeing that in Atlanta, so like our office market rents are, are finally increasing. All the office landlords are, are clapping, right? And doing the Snoopy dance, finally. Uh, By the know. way, he says Snoopy dance all the time. <laughs> and he says it when I'm on his radio slash TV show slash podcast slash everything. But he's wired into the seat. Now you only have one. I want to see that Snoopy dance one day. Oh, I'd like to it. see you get up <laughs> it goes like this. and have your ears flapping. <laughs> so is this expected to continue? And is it the lack of new supply? Is it the kind of built-in rate growth and rent growth? Or are some of these folks paying some of these low cap rates, even for properties in Atlanta that we might think are, are kind of low cap rates for Atlanta? Is it the rate growth that, that may be built in because they haven't gotten the rent increases yet that are, the market's getting? Yes. It's 140 characters or less. So interestingly enough, we haven't in the, in the United States added meaningfully to the supply of office stock since the 80s. And if you look at when in that decade we added to office stock, it was mostly in the front end of the 80s before the Tax Reform Act of 86 and the ultimate savings and loan crash. So. We don't really have new supply. We're adding new supply of office stock at a rate, depending on markets, right? A rate of about 1.5% of all supply a year. And we have 1940s and 30s vintage office stock in this country, and maybe to a lesser degree in Atlanta, but in other cities you have more of it. So if you increase demand, and I have this great chart that you can't see because it's in my head and it's not behind me, but there's been a precipitous rise in office using job employment. So if you look at all the job growth that exists in this country, it's not manufacturing jobs. It's mostly service jobs. And a good portion of the service jobs are office using jobs. So we've meaningfully added to office using jobs in this country. And we haven't added new supply of office space. What's interesting is the paradigm of 250 square feet per worker is kind of a maybe pre-2000s thing. By 20. Uh, 20, the forecast is less than 150 square feet per employee. I think it's down to 138. So I've always sort of joked that, and especially when I look at our offices, I know why that big technology company that's a brand of fruit, I'm trying to go brand agnostic, they bought a headphone company. The reason why they bought a headphone company is every office worker has headphones on because they're trying to drown out the ambient noise of the office because they're sitting next to somebody. So that's what's happening. We're just jamming more and more stuff. I don't know about your offices, but like in Midtown Manhattan, toilet paper runs out at like 1130 in, in the stalls. Is this tape for broadcast? <laughs> You're live. Oh, no. Hi, hi, mom and dad. In any event, so, but the, the fact of the matter is we're just jamming so much stuff into these buildings. It's not sustainable. Inevitably, we're going to have to add to supply. But if we're not, and we have all this demand, then rate, rent, rents have to grow. So I think there's a strong tailwind for 
office, and we can talk about multifamily because I know that's on your list too, but the strong tailwind for multifamily for office, the only challenge with that is if corporate budget process worries about a recession, they're less likely to enter into a new lease right now. I think if we get through some of this uncertainty in the market and we don't experience a quarter of negative GB, GDP growth or maybe another quarter of negative GDP growth and people realize that maybe it's just like a little autocorrection and it's not a real recession, then corporate budgeters will potentially say, all right, we need to expand in more space. But we need, we desperately need people in new space because the model we have is unsustainable. And the lack of new supply that, that you mentioned, it seems to be another factor impa impacting that, and that's the rising cost of construction. A lot of the people that we work with, are, they're putting a, at least a 1% increase in their construction costs for every 30 days of delay of a project. How might the rising labor costs and construction costs impact our commercial real estate industry? It has to, right? So what's interesting is you look at projects and you compare projects that are existing to what can you buy this thing for as a percentage of reproduction cost. The problem is the reproduction cost is messed up because it's actually costing a lot more to build these things. And we've got appraisers in a room, so you're pulling out a book and trying to figure out what the cost approach is. Fact of the matter is it's just costing a lot more, which is interesting because when economists, and full disclosure, I am not an economist, but when economists talk about jobs and wage, they always talk about construction jobs and the lack thereof, yet construction costs are going up in a period where commodity prices aren't going up. So it's not materials, it's clearly labor. And the housing market is recovering meaningfully, so we've got construction jobs there. We have a basically a skilled labor shortage in this country, and that skilled labor shortage is what's contributing to the construction cost increase. But I think the pace at which construction costs are rising isn't sustainable because margins are still tight in the business. So. After a short break, we'll get Mitch Rochelle's with PwC's input on how rising construction costs and rising interest rates will impact commercial real estate values. Stay with us. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Where today we're talking with Mitch Rochelle. He's the U.S. practice leader with PwC in their real estate department. He joined me for a fireside chat in Atlanta at the Georgia CCIM chapter. We'll start off uh, this segment talking about how rising construction costs and rising interest rates may impact commercial real estate. Enjoy. Well, does this rising cost in, in labor and construction, is that going to help commercial real estate values for the investors in the room? For existing product, you yeah. mean? Yes, absolutely. But we'd have to recalibrate, again, what that existing project really is trading at as a percentage of new construction and realize that new construction replacement value is going up. One of the things that as CCIMs, when we're doing analysis of ownership of a property, you know, we're looking at exit cap rates and whether we're looking at exit cap rates in, in five years or 10 years, but we're trying to figure out exit cap rates. So what would you say the impact of rising interest rates, say, over the next three, four, five, six years could do to commercial real estate values? I'm almost getting to the point where I'm not bought into the notion that rates are rising. 
So Japan has negative interest. I don't even know what a negative interest rate is. How is that even possible? Who's paying who, right? So we're actually, you're paying the central bank to hold on to your money. Is that what a negative interest rate is? So I think we're in a global long-term cycle of low interest rates. I'm not going to guess what the Fed's going to do the next time they get together, but if all of this nonsense uncertainty is going on out, out there, I wouldn't see them ri raising rates. And the 10-year, it's, it's baked into at least the shorter end of the curve, 155. So maybe all of this, let's assume interest rates is going up, is just a flawed assumption. So I reject your question, Michael Bull. So what was your question anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so if the interest rate would hopefully rise yeah. in the next five years, right? I guess we hope the economy strengthens and the Fed raises their rate because we are seeing a good... Oh, exit caps. Yes. There, there, there has to be some difference between going in and exit caps. It just absolutely makes sense. But I just think it's, it's probably going to be tighter because if we see interest rates going up, I think it's going to be these little 25 basis point moves and it's not really going to meaningfully move the needle. So yeah, exit caps need to clearly be higher. That's crazy, right? You're looking at 10 year cash flows and we're in a low interest rate environment and you got to figure 10 years from now, interest rates are higher, but no one's really figured that out. And when we asked that question in our second shameless plug, PwC Real Estate Investors Survey, when we, when we do that, there's crazy answers all over the place about what exit cap should be. I'd say there's not a lot of consensus around that because while everybody you ask, if I did a show of hands, who thinks interest rates could be higher a year from now, everybody's going to raise their hands. Then if I say how much higher, I'll have a hundred different answers, right? So no one, we fundamentally think rates are going up, but we, no one feels comfortable pegging where it is. Maybe 25, 50 basis points ends up becoming the right spread between where we are today and where cap rates will be 10 years from now. What would you expect the correlation to be between interest rates and cap rates? Right? I thought not, I said I didn't want to talk about <laughs> cap rates. It's not one-to-one, one one, right? You no. Know, there's other factors there. Right, no, because the cap rates widen. I think cap rates are a function of supply and demand of capital. That's what drives cap rates. And interest rates are moved by a completely different set of macroeconomic forces. They theoretically are independent of one another. And, and here's the crazy thing. So REITs just got beaten up last year because a lot of retail buyers of REIT shares bought them because they thought that they were a fixed income and alternative, and they were bailing because they thought that the yields were going to change. But the fundamentals for real estate are still strong. In fact, if you did a survey of REIT shareholders and you asked them what the first two letters in REIT stand for, I don't know how many would even know that it stands for real estate. Okay? Real, I'm serious. But the fact of the matter is, I think people view, retail investors view real estate as a fixed income alternative, so they behave that way. But the fundamentals of real estate really don't work that way. So I don't think that there's this correlation. I think that if real estate fundamentally makes sense, so... I said office fundamentally makes sense because we're grow growing office employment demand and we haven't added to stock supply. And when supply and demand dynamics work that way, that's good fundamentals, right? I guess. And I can say the same thing for multifamily and give you a whole bunch of numbers to support that hypothesis. So if the fundamentals are strong, then cap rates should, capital should find its way to the asset class and cap rates should stay low regardless. And I'll give you another little interesting nugget. From for those of you familiar with emerging trends in real estate, which we publish jointly with the Urban Land Institute, 
So every year we ask investors, what's your feeling on sentiment? And the way we ask the question is, what do you think the prospects for profitability for real estate are for the following year? This last year we did it, the positive sentiment was 84%. So 84 out of 100 people thought the prospects for profitability for the upcoming year, the one we're in, 2016, were good to excellent. The year prior, it was like 74%. We also asked them, what is the likelihood that interest rates will grow in the following year? And almost the same number, about 84% said yes. So how is it possible with an interest rate sensitive asset class of real estate that people thought profitability was rising when rates were rising? That just intuitively doesn't make sense if the cost of capital just went up. So clearly the real estate industry feels that the fundamentals are stronger from a tailwind perspective than the headwind of rising cost of capital. So I don't think that there's a correlation between the performance of the asset class and the cost of capital. And by the way, all of those times when we added meaningfully to supply of real estate that created bubbles, we did it in a period when rates were two, three, or four times higher than they are today. Tell the audience about the sentiment in your emerging trends report and how it compares to what year was it? Oh, oh six, six. Six. Yeah. So in 2006, we got the same. The pie chart was exactly the same as it is today where 84% of the folks felt that the prospects for profitability were good to excellent at 84%. So that's a little <laughs> scary, huh? The same exact... Same. Exact. Yes. Sentiment. Yeah. So we're all exuberant. Yes. Doing, as Michael said, the Snoopy dance. Yeah. yeah. But the fundamentals, I think, are totally different. What had happened in, 19, in 2006, capital was just like coming out of water faucets, right? And you couldn't create a chart showing how much dry powder was on the sidelines because there was no dry powder on the sidelines. You got money, you bought something. You got money, you bought something. That's not going on today. We have private equity that's getting pushed back from limited partners because they've raised capital and they haven't spent it. We have REITs that have cash on the balance sheet at a record amount. We have pension funds in open-ended funds that aren't selling assets because their fear is if they sell the asset and you know clear a price that's two cap, they can't find a product to replace it with and they don't want the cash on the balance sheet. So I don't think we have fundamentals or market dynamics today that are even close to what the market dynamics were pre-financial crisis. Also the debt levels are different, right? Uh, personal debt level, well listen, if you're buying a home, you actually need a down payment today. <laughs> That's crazy. You need a down payment to buy a home. If you, and, and by the way, I was around, because I'm older than I look, okay, but I, I was around before in, in every one of these recessions. Two of, by the way, two of the last four recessions were caused by real estate, okay? But the one in late when the CMBS market blew up in what, 98 or 99, around that time frame, when there was that Russian bond crisis and the hedge fund failed and CMBS market blew up. The CMBS world was doing 100% loan-to-value loans. And before the financial crisis, the CMBS market was doing 100% loan-to-value loans. I worked on the bankruptcy of 100, over 100% loan-to-value loan. And that just doesn't go on today. In the CMBS world, you need a down payment. In the residential mortgage origination world, you need a down payment. That's a good, that's the first time in 30 years I've seen profound discipline in both the commercial real estate and the residential real estate markets. After a quick break, we'll have more from Mitch Rochelle with PwC on U.S. commercial real estate, including the impact of FERPTA changes and foreign investment on U.S. real estate values. Stay with us. 
Exceligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Now we'll have more from Mitch Rochelle with PwC, where he joined me at the Georgia CCIM chapter meeting in Atlanta. Enjoy. Let's ask you about foreign investment in the U.S. We've seen a lot of foreign investment, even here in Atlanta, through some of the local sponsors. Coming from where? All over the world. Mm -hmm. The changes in FERPTA that happened in December, do you think that will increase the flow of foreign investment in the U.S.? Might that impact cap rates and values? If foreigners were investing, let's talk about taxable foreigners, so non-sovereign wealth funds. If taxable foreigners were investing in U.S. real estate when they were paying a tax, when they repatriate their money and you take away some of those tax disincentives, all things being equal, you would assume that that would improve the flow of capital from foreign investors. I think we're probably going to see a little bit of a seed change between who has been investing in U.S. real estate as a foreigner because China is probably going to lower their allocation to U.S. real estate. Does this audience know who the number one investor, foreign investor in U.S. real estate is? Anybody? Canada. Who said Canada. Big prize. So why? They're our neighbor. That's number one reason. And number two, so we went and spent time looking at foreign investment in U.S. real estate over the last 200 years. Biggest foreign investors in U.S. real estate are our trading partners. If you look at the U.S. investment abroad, U.S. investors investing in real estate, we tend to invest in our trading partners. It just seems to make sense. If that's the dynamic that's going on for 200 years, why would one piece of tax legislation meaningfully change that? I don't think it's going to move the needle that much. Now, Mitch, you look at property values around the world, around the country, especially the major markets a lot. So I'm interested in what you think about Atlanta real estate. I love Atlanta real estate. <laughs> Thank you. Atlanta's got the highest net immigration numbers between 2000, this is like Census Bureau and Moody's analytics numbers, between 2016 and 20. I think it's 90,000 people moving to Atlanta on a net basis, which makes it, from a net immigration perspective, the biggest uptick of any city in the United States. Another question I think a lot of us here, especially the brokers in the room, is that some of our investors sometimes look at the upcoming presidential election and they think, oh boy, the, the world's going to end if we have a socialist president. If you look back at history, has the presidential election impacted commercial real estate and the economy in a big way? The election itself? Probably not. What's interesting is we looked at Republicans and Democrats or blues or reds or any of that. We looked at Congress. We looked at who was in the Oval Office and what happened with the economy as it relates to real estate. And there was nothing. There was no car. It was just like it was, one argument could be made that an administration would have to be eight years in order to really move the needle from an economic perspective. And that would require the Oval Office and both Houses of Congress to be in the same political party. Like, none of that ever happens, so we haven't seen it. And I also haven't really heard any rhetoric around tax law changes that were regulatory changes that would really help. The last thing that happened coming out of Washington that changed the real estate world was the deregulation of savings and loan industry, which meaningfully changed real estate from a funding perspective. And then the tax Reform Act of 1986. Other than that, there really hasn't been something from a policy perspective that has had an unbelievably overwhelming impact on 
real estate. There have been things that administrations have done to respond. When the financial crisis happened, government had to respond, okay? When the savings and loan crisis blew up, government had to respond, and central bankers and so forth. But from a policy perspective, don't see the election doing anything. One of the things that we're seeing is technology uh, impacting every industry, including commercial real estate. There's been a a lot of money invested in uh, CRE tech. What impact do you think technology will have on, on the commercial real estate industry? In terms of disrupting it, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop to have the real estate industry disrupted the way every other industry has gotten disrupted by technology. My case study is the yellow taxi business in New York and how they got disrupted by one or two online mobile app taxi alternatives. The lodging industry has been disrupted twice. The creation of what we refer to as opaque sites where you can go online and book a hotel room without having to call the hotel or use that brand's website, right? So that was a disruptor. And then this whole Airbnb concept, a disruptor. But when is commercial real estate going to get disrupted that way? I would say that the space in which technology may, if we're overcrowding office spaces, there's maybe a play there where somehow there'll be a disruptor that'll fix that problem. Alternatively, and this is something that most people don't know, and I found it interesting, we created in this country in the last five years five times more jobs with companies that have 49 employees or less than companies that have 1,000 employees or more. And if we believe that job creation is the secret sauce that drives the real estate economy forward, we've been looking at the wrong companies because it's small companies. Small companies creating jobs and needing space are the sweet spot for some disruptor in the commercial real estate area. I'm just talking about the office subsector, maybe light industrial. There's something that's gonna happen there. It's probably just gonna disrupt the brokerage world more than it'll disrupt the landlord world, I think, though. After a quick break, we'll have more fun with Mitch Rochelle from PwC on the U.S. commercial real estate market. We'll ask him about the impact of the sharing technology on commercial real estate. We'll ask his view on the office market and his favorite sector to invest in. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you in accounting, banking, or technology? Advertising on this show is an incredible way to reach U.S. commercial real estate participants. Visit CREshow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. We're enjoying Mitch Rochelle today with PwC and his view on the commercial real estate market. He joined me for a fireside chat at the Georgia CCI meeting in Atlanta. Enjoy. So what about the sharing technology and the sharing economy that we have now? Might that impact commercial real estate or one of the sectors? Normally, I don't use brands when I speak because I'm shrouded by PR people who hit me with a taser if I do. But I moderated a panel and the CEO of a big REIT was the guest on the panel, or one of them, I think maybe the largest office REIT in the country. And he said that the biggest tenant for his space when RFPs went out for space was WeWork. I looked into that and other companies like that. That's a model from a sharing economy perspective. So if you have a whole bunch of different companies working together, none of whom can afford a 3D printer, but one exists in the space and they need a 3D printer for what they do, I think we're going to see that sharing economy taking place because I'm going to go back to my answer to the previous question, 49 employees or less, if that's who's driving the economy forward. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I remember working on this feasibility study in the 80s for something called a business incubator. That was a really cool idea. It went nowhere. 
but I guess somebody dusted off that business plan and called it something different and launched it like five years ago. That's where we're going to see that in office space. And we're going to probably see it in the home ownership space as well, where people who physically want to be in a home, but maybe can't afford it themselves, we may see some shared economy in terms of the home ownership business too. And you mentioned office space and the office sector and some of the technology and changes going on. You mentioned lower square footage per employee and people working at home and all of that. Bless so what you. so what do you expect about the office market moving forward and, and what are some of the factors that may impact it? Oil, right? So the, I guess a couple of things. This whole Suburban, suburban, people moving back to the suburbs. I was trying to invent a word and it just didn't work. But people moving back to the suburbs, road congestion's an issue. Will driverless cars show up? Is the suburban office model dead? But all of this in a period where we're now buying gasoline for $2 a gallon again, right? So I think that there's going to be something going on there in terms of office space. I get this question all the time, is suburban office dead? because there's all this urbanization going on in this country. People want to work, live, work, play, and that doesn't work when you're stuck to a car. Another fun fact I'll give you, the application rate for driver's licenses in this country amongst Americans 25 years and older, it, younger rather, is at the lowest rate it's been in modern U.S. history. Crazy, all right? I've got soon-to-be 16-year-olds that, like, can't wait to get their driver's license. I let one of my kids drive my boat for a second. I was, like, just taking the fenders off. And I was like, Sam, do me a favor. Keep the bow pointed at that red buoy and just don't move. Like, um, just, just hold the wheel. I'm going to go run around the boat and take the fenders off. I look up for a second, and we're headed into, like, a jetty. <laughs> we're about to die. And he's Snapchatting. <laughs> I'm driving dad's boat. Let's take pictures of it like an idiot, okay? I don't want that kid behind the wheel of a car. I'm just throwing that out there. You don't want that kid behind the wheel of a car. But in any event, so is suburban office dead? Well, here's the other thing. Who lives in the suburbs? People who are getting older. And I can tell you, the older you get, the more times you go to a doctor a week, okay? So suburban office in a lot of metro areas across the country are just filling up with medical office uses. I think that there's a big shift going on in terms of where we live, where we play, where we go to the doctor, how we commute, and it's going to sort of have a big effect on offices and where people live and so forth, which I don't think people have really figured out. The Millennials, and I've like had to go on a nationwide speaking tour to apologize to millennials because I blame them for the drop in the home ownership rate until I pulled up this cool chart that showed me that the home ownership rate has dropped for all ages across the country. Having said that, there's a lot of data that suggests that the leading edge of the millennial cohort is actually buying homes for the first time. And where are they doing it? In the suburbs. And why are they doing it in the suburbs? Because they want to get out of the city because they're worried about the education for their kids. If all of this stuff is happening, then we're back to the 80s and 70s and history is just going to repeat itself and all of the uses and all the places where real estate is will make sense again. It's all Gen X's fault. That's who I'm blaming now. And I want to talk some more about some of the various sectors, but if you were going to invest in commercial real estate today and you could invest in any sector, which sector would you prefer? Limited service hotels. I just made that up. <laughs> Because if you think about it, RevPAR, Revenue Per Available Room, has grown for like the last six years at over 5%, and GDP in no year has grown by more than 3%. Easy math, RevPAR growth, top line, a lot of that falls to the bottom line, but not all, okay? But RevPAR has grown 
at twice the rate of GDP in the last five years, and we haven't meaningfully added to supply. Where does RevPAR not all fall to the bottom line? In full-service hotels. So it just seems to make sense that limited-service hotels located in the right spots do well. All of the big brands are experimenting with new, cool, sexy brands in the limited-service hotel space. And when you talk to them about the expansion of that brand, the thing that scares them the most is they just can't find owners who want to take the risk and build. So, and they don't want to use their balance sheet up to do it because that's not their business model. So I think there's an opportunity for new construction, new development of limited service hotel, as well as, and by the way, there are t- I'll take a brand new limited service hotel sometimes over a like 40 year old full service hotel. And sometimes when I'm traveling and I try to find one, they're full. And because the occupants in those hotels tend to be very sticky and their stays tend to be longer, because the other big macro trend that's going on in this country is less full-time employment and more independent contractor employment. So these long projects that independent contractors often work on are on the road. And where do they stay? They stay in limited service hotels. So, Great information from Mitch Rochelle with PwC on the U.S. commercial real estate market. After a short break, we're going to talk to Mitch about an industrial market. The industrial market has been doing very well. Is it time to invest? Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking with Mitch Rochelle. He's the U.S. Real Estate Practice Leader with PwC, talking about the commercial real estate market. Enjoy. What do you think about the industrial sector? What's interesting is in our emerging trends work for the last three years, maybe four, industrial was the number one sub-asset class in the eyes of investors from an opportunity perspective. What's happened in those four years is where the industrial is has shifted. Four years ago, if I was sitting here talking about industrial, I'd say, problem is we have all this old antiquated industrial. The ceilings aren't high enough. The bays aren't big enough. This isn't this. This isn't that. And I'd also talk about where it needed to be located because everybody wanted industrial that was near rail lines because... Diesel was four and a half, almost $5 a gallon, and people were using rail to ship bananas across the country or whatever it was. Now diesel's two and a half bucks, although boat gas is still going to be $5 a gallon, but that's besides the point. But the fact of the matter is industrial's changed because industrial needs to be all about last mile delivery of online stuff. In my building in Manhattan where I work, we have about seven, 8,000 people who work in our building. And between the beginning of November, but certainly from Thanksgiving to our Christmas holiday break, the poor dude on my floor who pushes around a cart only pushes around stuff that was bought online. Because all of our employees, what do they do? They ship stuff to the office. So offices have become the receiving departments for all of our online stuff. That poses a problem for landlords and property managers and so forth. But if that's where they're getting delivered, Where's the warehouse that they're coming from? So we've created this urbanization of industrial. So I think you have to look at it differently and you have to look at it more about where people work 
and where people are getting their stuff delivered and figure out how to solve that logistical nightmare as opposed to where the supply chain is near the interstate and near the rail lines. Well, so is this last mile issue, does that create some opportunities in industrial? Yes. I think there's going to be a whole new intermediary that locks up all the space in urban areas that will be the owner of the space that the stuff is stored at to make that last mile work. And the thing is, the online retailers have tremendous analytics about what's being bought. They can almost forecast going into a holiday season what goods they need to stick in that space. And by the way, they also can drive people to a certain product. So if they put a certain brand of 60-inch flat screen in that space because they projected that the, the sales volume in the next two weeks would be a certain thing and the sale volume isn't there, run a special on it and people will buy it. How many people go to that online retailer and look at the deals of the day, right? That drives traffic. That's going to be a business. So what's, what's all this online sales? It's benefiting industrial. Obviously, it's impacting retail real estate. What do you think about retail moving forward? A couple of things on retail. There's probably three segments of retail. There's the big fortress kind of mall, which is more about experience than anything else. And all the survey work we do in our retail practice revolves around people wanting an experience. That's what the mall satisfies the experience. Then there's the neighborhood grocery pharmacy. And by the way, the drugstore grocery business is all kind of merging into one, in my view, because milk is cheaper in the CVS than it is in the supermarket. So that business is all about rooftops. And since we're sort of repopulating the suburbs with millennials who are moving out, so that whole rooftop business is going to be good. It's the stuff in between that's going to be hurt. So the stuff that sells them at least probably isn't going to get leased and it's probably built in the wrong spot. And the big box retailers, the survival of the fittest has probably already happened there. So as your other frequent guest, who I'm a big fan of from Reese, Ryan Severino says, it's just under demolished. Maybe it's time to start <laughs> demolishing some of that stuff. Great information there from Mitch Rochelle with PwC who joined us from New York at the Georgia CCIM chapter meeting. We appreciate Mitch coming down and joining us. Also want to thank the good people at the Georgia CCIM chapter for having Mitch and I for a fireside chat. We have a great show for you next week. The show is called Zoning for Dollars. We'll share some great insight, strategies, and tips for you. Until next week, make sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions. Call 800-408-2855 or visit bullrealty.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit commercialsearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com. 